Good morning, my friends, and welcome to another scintillating episode from high above all other puerile and pedantic forms of Wyoming mainstream media. This is Cowboy State Politics. I, of course, am your illustrious host, David Iverson, firmly ensconced behind the silver Cowboy State Politics microphone and broadcasting to you from the base of the Bighorns in beautiful Buffalo, Wyoming. For the last two years, Americans have listened to the left over and over and over tell us that we have to accept the results of the 2020 election. To our profound disappointment, most of us have. That doesn't mean, however, that we ought not improve upon the process. At the very least, and being extraordinarily generous, there are numerous questions about the process of the 2020 election. The strength of our elections relies, at least in part, upon the integrity of the process. Equally as important, or perhaps more so, is the belief in the electorate that the elections are sound. You see, trust is a fickle thing. Once trod upon, it is very difficult to get it back. So-called news agencies across the state have continued to attack Chuck Gray, our next Secretary of State. How dare he impugn the reputation of Wyoming's, quote, gold standard elections. Former Secretary of State Ed Buchanan traveled the state trying to convince everyone that there's absolutely no problem with Wyoming elections and that there's no voter fraud whatsoever. Article after article was printed trying to paint Representative Gray as an extremist who ought not be anywhere near the Secretary of State's office. But none of it worked, and Representative Gray was elected to be our next Secretary of State. Many of our elected officials who chastised Wyoming citizens for even questioning the outcome of the 2020 election mounted an effort to subvert the results of the 2022 primary election. When the person they tried to convince to run as an independent against Chuck Gray said that we ought to respect the will of the people, those same elected officials, the Corporation's Elections and Political Subdivisions Committee, then mounted an effort to remove all of incoming Secretary of State Chuck Gray's power. This isn't an unusual move for the Redcoats. The Wyoming legislature has tried this three times before and were successful once with the Office of the State Auditor. Our state auditor no longer audits anything. Fortunately for Wyoming citizens, this attempt is going nowhere. It's dead on arrival in the Wyoming House of Representatives. But it raises a larger and more immediate question. Why is it they think that they can issue edicts from their ivory tower? The only obelisk that I'm aware of is nowhere near Cheyenne, Wyoming. The Wyoming wind blows way too hard for any towers to babble to be built in our capital city. But not leaving anything to chance, Wyoming's founders were far too wise to even allow the possibility of one to be built. The very first line of the Wyoming Constitution which I'm certain that most of them have never read, make certain of that, that all power is inherent in the people. We explained that first sentence to them earlier this month, and in November, no doubt, we'll explain the last, that at all times we have an inalienable and indefeasible right to alter, reform, or abolish the government in such manner as they, or we, may think proper. In the final analysis, it is not the Wyoming wind that keeps the Capitol building in Cheyenne low to the ground. 
It is the gale force will of the Wyoming people that prevents any pillars from being erected in Wyoming. Coming up, I have a great presentation that was delivered this past Sunday in Casper by former Fox News columnist and researcher John Lott. You might have heard of him. He's the author of 10 different books, including More Guns, Less Crime, and his most recent endeavor, Gun Control Myths. But first, some completely outrageous self-aggrandizement. You can listen to the podcast on any of your favorite podcasting apps. iHeartRadio, iTunes, TuneIn, really any of them will work. But the easiest way is just to go to the website, CowboyStatePolitics.com. There you can find all of the shows as well as any of the articles that I might bring up during the course of a program. If your name is Sleepy Joe Biden, Kale Case, or Dan Zwanitzer, and you have no idea what Wyoming citizens really want, well, you can go to CowboyStatePolitics.com, pull up an article, and educate yourself, just like you should have been doing from the very beginning. Okay, so this past Sunday, I attended an event in Casper that was put on by Gun Owners of America. Their keynote speaker was John Lott Jr., it's pretty long, but I'm going to play it for you in its entirety. Here it is. First of all, I don't call myself a gun rights advocate, okay? Um, I'm a researcher. I think a lot of people on the left want me to be called that. Um, I, you know, my views have changed a lot over time. I don't go and try to prove that gun control doesn't work. I've gone and looked at these things. If you were to tell me uh, 25 years ago when I was at Wharton and starting to work on this stuff that I'd be here in Wyoming giving a talk on this stuff, I wouldn't have believed you, okay? Uh, I was probably at that time kind of in the middle of, uh, of the gun control debate. Uh, but, you know, one of the reasons why I've stuck with this is that I've probably come across more misinformation on this issue than almost anything else. In fact, I've talked to some people earlier in the evening. Uh, most of my, research, my academic research hasn't been on guns. It's been on things like voting, uh, fraud type issues. It's been on education. It's been on a whole range of other topics that are there. Anyway, um, and it, but I kind of thought to myself, if I don't speak out on these types of things, nobody else is going to do it. So. Uh, kind of cost me my academic career, but uh, I got advice early on where uh, a PR person talked to me. They said, look, John, there's going to be a third of the people or so are going to agree with you on almost anything you say. There's going to be a third that are going to disagree with you on anything. you got to kind of aim for people in the middle of the debate. And what I've kind of discovered on the issue of guns is that the people in the middle of the debate they may value things like freedom and what have you, but they also value safety. And a lot of them are willing to trade off freedom for safety type of issues. And so if you read any of my 10 books or other things I've written, I never talk about Second Amendment issues. That's not something to me. My goal is just to try to figure out what makes people safer. I think in this case, this is one area where freedom and safety go together on these things. You know, so much of the gun control debate uh, occurs, involves things that might possibly happen as opposed to what actually does happen. Uh, you look at things like uh, guns in schools for teachers. 
and uh, uh, you'll see, I've been involved in state legislative debates and things like that, and there's all these things that come down about, well, what happens if a teacher loses their temper and shoots a student? Or what happens if a teacher leaves a gun on the side there and, uh, and uh, a student picks it up and something bad happens? Or what happens if you do have some type of mass shooting and the teacher there uh, you know, accidentally shoots the wrong person? Or what happens if the police arrive on the scene and they accidentally shoot the teacher who is trying to stop the attack? The thing is, all those things are possible, but we don't need to guess. You have 20 states right now in the United States that have armed teachers and staff. Uh, Wyoming has a few schools that are like that. There are a lot of other school states that have, you know, in Utah, your neighbor, uh, any teacher who has a concealed carry permit can carry at school. New Hampshire is the same way. You have a number of states where you have, uh, you have a number of uh, states where, like Texas, over 30% of the schools have uh, armed teachers. Uh, in Ohio and Oklahoma, it's over 40% of the school districts have it. And these states have had these types of rules literally for decades. So we don't need to guess about what happened. We just have to look at what happens. And all those things that I just went through, you know, uh, there's never been a case where a teacher shot a student. There's never been a case where a teacher has left a gun so that a student has gotten a hold of it. They're possible, but at least with all these thousands of schools that have these things, you at least think they could point to one case over all these years where that type of thing has happened. Uh, you would think, so, uh, you th you, how about a teacher accidentally shooting the wrong person when there's attack? You know, one thing that's interesting, if you look since 2000, uh, with all these schools having uh, armed teachers and staff, you would think you could point to cases where there have been attacks at those schools. And yet, all the school shootings in the United States where anybody's been killed or wounded, every single one has occurred in schools where guns are banned. Is it by accident? I don't know. So, to talk about uh, a few different topics that are here, I, I guess I'll just talk about red flag laws a little bit. I've done a lot of work on this type of thing. Uh, you know, red flag laws, I guess there are like 20 states that have these types of rules, and obviously the federal government recently passed funding that they say is for red flag laws, though it actually can be used for other types of things. And red flag laws, just so you know, are rules where somebody can make a complaint, okay? A judge sees a piece of paper in front of them and then they go and decide whether or not to take away the person's guns based solely on the written complaint that's there. Uh, it's virtually always used for suicide. You know, like 99% of the time it's used for suicide. But most people don't seem to understand is that all the states in the United States and the federal government already have better laws on the books. They're basically, they go by the name involuntary commitment, Baker Act in Florida, 5150 in, uh, in uh, California by various names. And what happens there is if you're concerned about somebody, you go to the police, the police will go and um, 
determine whether or not uh, they think that there's some just cause there. And then they can take you in for a psychiatric evaluation that can last in for anywhere from 24 to 72 hours. And, uh, uh, and then if the experts that interviewed you uh, think that there is a sufficient concern, there can be an immediate hearing. If you can't afford a lawyer, one will be provided for you. And at that point, uh, you'll have a hearing and you can go and challenge the information that's pre presented against you. And then the judge has actually a whole range of options. They can do things like uh, say, I think there's a concern, I'm not going to involuntarily commit you, but if you promise to go to see mental health care experts, we'll have you come back in a couple weeks and we'll reevaluate the situation. They could take away a person's guns or they could go and voluntarily commit you in the most extreme case. How does that differ from red flag laws? Red flag laws don't have mental health care experts involved. The only thing that the judge sees is the piece of paper. The judge makes a decision before there's any hearing that's there. And uh, the judge, uh, the only thing that judges can do under red flag laws is to take away a person's guns. So if you're concerned about somebody committing suicide, is it really a serious solution to say, I'm just going to take away the person's guns? Is that really? It, you would think you would have mental health care experts involved. None of the states with red flag laws actually have mental health care experts involved in the process. Uh, and, uh, and as far as courts go, I've talked to lawyers. You're talking about $10,000 or so to go and hire a lawyer to go and represent you in these types of hearings. The vast majority of people who go through these red flag law proceedings, because maybe within a month or so there'll be a hearing where you'll actually be able to go and uh, uh, confront the evidence that's been brought against you. Uh, it, but is it worth $10,000 to me if the only thing that happens is they take away my guns? I may like my guns, but is it worth $10,000 to me when the worst that can happen is to take away the guns? So the vast majority of people don't actually, uh, uh, so I kind of already kind of bounced around some of the stuff that's here. Um, you know, the, the issue I was trying to get into a little bit was basically how the gun control debate works. And a lot of the debate is about things that might possibly happen. The way to go and confront that is to say, well, how does it actually work? You know, what's been the experience? You know, so you saw this with constitutional carry or whatever. People will go and say certain bad things will happen. Or when you had right to carry laws get passed in Wyoming and other states. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, Ohio, I was asked to testify three times before they finally adopted their right to carry law. Uh, when Ohio first had hearings, uh, Indiana and Pennsylvania had right to carry laws. Uh, and they would say, well, you know, Ohio is different. You know, people in Ohio are just different than people in Indiana and Pennsylvania. All right. So the next time another state adopted, by the third time I was there, all the states surrounding Ohio had adopted right to carry type laws. And my question to you, are you afraid of leaving the state? I mean, any place you drive, you're going to do it. Is Ohio really different than Michigan or Kentucky or West Virginia or Pennsylvania or Indiana? You know, 
as more places adopt these things, it becomes more and more difficult to go and make those types of uh, claims about fears that might possibly happen. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about how the media misinforms people on this stuff. So I was basically asked to talk about three things, gun-free zones, uh, the push by the Biden administration. They've done a lot of things like this ESG, where the, you know, here in Wyoming you have oil and energy, uh, you know, gas and coal, and they're basically trying to put them out of business by making it so that financial institutions won't do business with them. Uh, as Mark was mentioning earlier, you have these issues with the credit card companies over the last couple of weeks, and then we have red flag ones. So, <clears throat> we'll get back to John Lott Jr. in just a second. But first, a completely obscene profit timeout. Three hundred seven Cowboy Country is excited to announce our latest endeavor, three hundred seven Cowboy Fabrication. It's a joint venture with Cowboy Sales in Lander, Wyoming, through which we build and sell our own Wyoming-built animal shelters, which feature the following. They start with a three and a half inch heavy walled pipe tubing base, making the shelter fully skittable while pulling it into a new location with either a tractor or a pickup. The pipe base makes the shelter incredibly strong and movable and aids in animal health. We utilize Wyoming milled full dimension rough cut lumber in our shelters, which adds to their strength and durability. And they fully sheet all of the shelters with OSB, Again, adding to the strength and helping to better protect livestock from Wyoming's occasional cruel weather. Finally, we cover the shelters with 29-gauge high-quality metal fabricated right here in Wyoming. Metal sheeting provides for long life, low maintenance, and great durability. Our metal is available in a large variety of colors. Call Bryce or Melody Reese at 307-441-1815 to discuss your animal shelter needs today. That's the new 307 Cowboy Fabrication. Don't forget about the Cowboy State Politics live program. It's every Thursday at 10 a.m. All you have to do is look at the Cowboy State Politics Facebook page. I'll post the link there as well as the website. If you follow the program, you'll be notified immediately when the live stream starts. That's Cowboy State Politics live every Thursday at 10 a.m. And now, back to the program. going to give you a brief discussion about the media and the impact that it has, and then I'm going to show you a short video uh, that we put together. Um, but the media impacts this both in terms of what's covered and how it covers it. Uh, I'll give you a simple example. If people only hear about bad things that happen with guns and never hear about the benefits, you know, it's not too surprising. People think, well, if I just get rid of the guns, then the bad things won't happen. They won't see or think about the, the good things that aren't going to be occurring, like defensive gun uses. So last year, uh, the Crime Prevention Research Center, which I had, we went through and did a lot of going through media to look at defensive gun use stories. 
Um, in the first nine months of last year, if you look at the five largest newspapers in the United States, uh, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, USA Today, the Wall Street Journal, between those 10 uh, newspapers, or five newspapers, they had 10 defensive gun use stories. By contrast, they had, uh, if you looked at crimes with murder or woundings, and they had 1,743 stories. If you also include shooting, they had over 2,700 stories. You can include CNN and MSNBC in there, and they had zero defensive gun use stories in those outlets. So somebody could feel, look, I'm a really well-informed person. I read the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, I go and I watch CNN religiously and MSNBC, and there's a good chance they may never hear about a defensive gun use that occurs. And even the ones that they had, even these 10 stories, usually something went wrong. The person shot the wrong person, or the gun was taken away from them and used against them. Things that are actually pretty rare. What we did was, we said, okay, let's look at all the media outlets in the United States and all the defensive gun use stories that are there. And what you find is that there's actually over 2,000 uh, defensive gun use stories that they had during this period of time. But there's a problem. When you look at the defensive gun use stories, 43% of them involve instances where the attacker's been killed. Another 42% involve instances where the attacker has been wounded. 4% involve instances where the, uh, uh, a simple brandishing of a gun was used to stop the attack. And most of those involve cases where the attacker was held at gunpoint until police arrived. Now, why is that a problem? The academic research that we have indicates that actually about 95% of the time that people use guns defensively, it's, it just involves brandishing. But let's say you're an editor of a newspaper and you have two stories that come across your desk. In one case, there's uh, a woman who brandishes a gun, uh, would-be attacker runs away, no shots are fired, no dead body on the ground, you're not even sure what crime would have been committed. In another case, you have a dead body on the ground. Which story are you gonna cover? My guess is any of us, if we were editor of the newspaper, would be much more likely to cover the dead body on the ground then we're going to go and cover the case where the woman has brandished the gun and the attackers run away. It's just, you know, kind of if it bleeds, it leads types of discussions. You know, in, in reality, uh, academic research indicates that way less than maybe about a tenth of one percent of the time that people use guns defensively is the attacker killed. About seven or eight times more frequently, guns are used to wound attackers, but that's also way less than one percentage point. But if you just listen to the news, you're going to think, rarely does it happen that people use guns defensively. But when they do, it's most likely that the attacker is going to be killed. And pretty close next to that is going to be wounding. And it almost never involves disbrandishing, which is the exact opposite. It's, the point is, what makes something newsworthy doesn't always reflect reality very well. And, and I think it has a big impact. You know, just this kind of imbalance with brandishing is just one reason why you're not going to hear about most offensive gun uses that are going to be there, uh, even if the reporters know about it. And there's other evidence that indicates that 
you know, just for violent crime generally, people report less than half of violent crime to police. And yet, even if they report it, you know, whether or not a gun was used, there's no systematic data that police put together on guns used defensively, even for the crimes that are there. So, you know, it's kind of understandable why, uh, why it rarely gets covered, and, but it has an impact on people's perceptions about the costs and benefits of guns. Uh, you know, you take something like mass public shootings, and I'm going to go through this more a lot later. But, you know, one of the things that's in the debate all the time is that the United States is unique in terms of mass public shootings, that this is the country where it happens. It's not true, not even close to being true. Uh, I just mentioned one thing quickly. If I were to ask over the last decade, just comparing Western Europe and the United States, can anybody tell me where the worst mass public shooting between Western Europe and the United States occurred? No. Paris. Yeah, uh, in uh, November 2015, a concert in Paris, 130 people were murdered in a mass public shooting. You know where the second worst mass public shooting was? It was in Norway. It was uh, six, we we're gonna get to there next, right? The, uh, the uh, anyway, it was in Norway where 67 people were shot to death. But most people don't know about these things. Look, we're in the United States. It's a lot more newsworthy to have a shooting in the United States get news coverage than it is to have a shooting someplace else. These got some coverage in the United States, but if you had had 130 people shot to death or 67 people shot to death, it would have gotten a lot more news coverage in the United States than it did for these attacks uh, in these other countries. But we'll go into that more uh, later. So <clears throat> I want to, uh, I'm gonna just show you a short uh, four-minute video here that just deals with media bias generally because I think it's important to kind of understand where people are coming from. You know, I, I frequently hear that numbers just don't matter in the gun control debate and I think that's wrong. I think that I think facts do matter. It's just that people think that they know more about gun issues than they know about any other issue because they're constantly hearing about stories in the news about crimes and other things that are happening. So you go and give them a number or a fact, and it goes into this ocean of information that they have there. And so it's kind of, and we'll go into this a little bit more, but. God. Well, they like the movie. But as soon as it comes to a good civilian using a gun for self-defense, Hollywood turns anti-gun. She shot herself. Why the gun? Hollywood constantly portrays people who hate guns. I'm not a huge fan of weapons. Now, do you see why I don't like guns? You don't like guns either. I'm not a fan of guns. I don't like it. Why do I leave the FBI? Guns, maybe. It's almost as if they're trying to condition people to hate guns. In Hollywood, even Navy SEALs warn against owning guns. You need a gun to protect the kids when you're not around. You'd be dangerous to yourself. The wise law enforcement expert constantly urged people not to use them. In my experience, the problem with carrying a gun is that eventually it will go off. But Hollywood gets this backwards. In real life, police strongly support civilians owning guns and carrying them for self-defense. A recent survey by the National Association of Chiefs of Police polled thousands of sheriffs and chiefs of police. 76% believe that qualified law-abiding armed citizens help law enforcement 
reduce violent criminal activity. Detroit's police chief urges people to carry guns. So good Americans who are responsible with concealed weapons can make a difference. He became chief and encouraged civilians to carry guns six years ago. Detroit's murder rate fell since then. I'm excited about our trend downward. Nationwide, rank-and-file cops show even stronger support for private gun ownership than do police chiefs. More than 90% supported civilians carrying guns. No surprise, Hollywood's cops are wrong, and real-life cops are right. Police are informed by what they see on the street every day. They know how important having a gun is to their own safety, and they know that private citizens can help. We've seen our Good Samaritan. We've seen them go to the aid to others because they were good Americans with uh, concealed weapons permits. Many Hollywood crime show writers clearly know nothing about guns and crime. The myths they push on people are endless. What else do we know about these guns? Um, this is the machine gun that David's just firing at us, so-called cop killer. Stop. Since 1934, there are only two known uses ever of a machine gun being used in a murder. Yet Hollywood shows criminals using machine guns to outgun cops all the time. Hollywood also finds endless ways to insult civilians who are using guns. No good's gonna come from you guys running around here with assault rifles. We're prisoners on the loose. We got a right to protect our neighborhood. Yeah, that's a job for law enforcement, not a ragtag militia. Hollywood plays to bigoted stereotypes, depicting gun owners as dumb hicks. You got one! He's got a future in it. Get off. Now they flicked it. Officers, please. Hey, let him go. That's not who we're looking for. I can't tell you that! You sure? He looks guilty as hell to me. Please check his papers. Let him go! In real life, citizen volunteers and neighborhood watch programs save lives. A 2008 U.S. Justice Department analysis found that crime fell 16% in areas that started a neighborhood watch program compared to those that did not. Some of Hollywood's bias is comical. In this show, a woman asks a federal agent if he's worried about not having his gun in a gun-free zone when he's facing professional killers. Bad guys won't have them either? Seriously? Has a bad guy ever seen a no-guns-allowed sign and turned around? In the show, the killers obey the signs and leave their guns behind. But in real life, gun-free zones only encourage criminals. They serve as a magnet for criminals. Virtually all the mass public shootings in the United States since 1950 have occurred in places where general citizens are banned from having guns. The Virginia Beach shooting this year was another example of this. A woman who worked at the municipal office building talked with her husband the night before the attack about bringing her permanent concealed handgun to work for self-defense. But she decided not to because of a city rule against carrying guns. She and 11 others were killed the next day by a disgruntled co-worker. In another recent case, a doctor carried a gun anyway, despite his hospital's no-gun policy. And he stopped a mass public shooting. As the district attorney put it, if the doctor did not have a firearm, he'd be dead today. And I believe that other people in that facility would also be dead. That real-life situation would make a gripping TV story, but don't expect to see it. Hollywood bias is everywhere, and it endangers lives by misleading people on guns. All right, so I'm not going to talk about red flag laws since I kind of already went through them. The bottom line is that there's a better law that we already have here. Uh, 
my own belief is you guys aren't going to be passing red flag laws. The other things, I know people can, Mark and I may disagree on this a little bit. I think there, I've seen legislators kind of get, try to do too many different things. To me, there's a couple important things that I, I think it's you to focus on, but that's your call. That's what you guys get paid the big bucks for. So, um, you know, the, the Biden administration has been trying to flip the switch, the, the flip the script on, on crime, wanting to be tough on crime. Personally, I don't think Biden's been very serious about this. Um, you know, he wants to spend $13 billion more on police. I guess my response is, you know, which is good. I want them to spend more on police and training. Um, whether it actually will result in more police or not isn't clear. He had something similar in the 1990s where, uh, you know, looking at it afterwards because of all the loopholes and fungibility of money that really didn't result in any more police being hired. It was basically just a transfer to certain areas. But, you know, 13 billion kind of pales in comparison to the 80 billion that they want to spend on more IRS agents. But the reason why it's not serious is that police are only one part of the law enforcement. You know, one of the things that's frustrated police is that you have, uh, they arrest people and then they're back on the street immediately. Is Biden criticizing any of the left-wing district attorneys around the country that are refusing to prosecute violent criminals? Is he going and criticizing uh, the um, uh, liberal judges in many of these urban areas that have released half or over two-thirds of inmates uh, because of the coronavirus over the last couple of years? Does he go and criticize anybody with regard to bail reform that's there? He go into all these things in much more depth. But simply arresting more people, if you don't actually convict them and you don't actually put them in jail, is, and don't even put them in jail while they're waiting trial, isn't going to be very useful. But Biden's been doing lots of other things that are really creating a huge change in uh, firearm ownership. You know, here we're in the irony that not only do we have uh, politicians who want to make it so law enforcement can't protect people, but they also want to make it so that people then can't protect themselves. <clears throat> so one of the things that Biden's been doing is this zero tolerance policy on gun dealers. I don't know how many of you run businesses here. Uh, what do you think would happen if we had a rule that had federal agents come in and see if they could find one paperwork mistake, no matter how trivial, no matter how inconsequential, over the last 15 years of the paperwork that you've done? How many, how many own businesses do you think you could find? Do you think they could find one paperwork mistake, a typo or something else? Oh, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> over 15 years? And they should take away your license to be able to go and do business if they can find that? That's essentially the rule that they have. Biden puts this across as saying, well, you know, we have these gun dealers selling guns out of the back of their store to criminals. That's not what they're going after. If he actually knew that, then go after them and put them in jail. But I'm not sure how one tiny paperwork mistake uh, is indications that they're selling guns out of the back of their store to that. And they literally, in just a year or so, they put thousands of gun dealers out of business already. But one of the other things that they've been doing to put uh, firearms dealers out of business is uh, and, and, and manufacturers is what's called ESG, this kind of social paradigm to go and see whether they're good businesses or not. 
you know, a state like Wyoming should be particularly sensitive to this because a lot of the businesses that are being destroyed are in oil, gas, and coal, and those are all pretty important for your state. If it were me, uh, and I was talking to one legislator who uh, has a bill on this, I would not only have a bill on this to kind of join Texas and West Virginia and some other states that are there. Florida, I was just talking to the head of uh, 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 Ron DeSantis's uh, gubernatorial reelection campaign, and the governor is going to make a push for this after the, this coming election for his state. But there's another thing that could be there and something that Mark raised about the credit cards. And that is uh, what's become a news item in the last couple weeks is that uh, credit card companies now are going to essentially keep track of purchases involving firearms or ammunition. You have to understand why they're doing this. I don't know if you know about this, but uh, in February this year, it came out that the Biden administration has put together a national registry uh, for guns. Uh, what they do is when federally licensed dealers have gone out of business uh, or retired or whatever, they go and give their list of firearms purchases uh, to uh, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms and Explosives. Up until now, those, that paperwork has basically just been paperwork that's been put in some warehouse someplace. What Biden did as soon as he got into office was to take the, that paper out of the warehouse and computerize it. Now, there's actually a federal law that forbids the federal government from having a searchable database of gun ownership in the United States. They think that they've gotten around it because they said, well, we're not using it to search. We haven't actually done any searches on it, even though they put the computerized database together. They have made some changes. So up until the Biden administration, federally licensed dealers only had to keep a record of firearms uh, transactions for 20 years. They've introduced an edict. Uh, we'll see what happens in court cases, but that they have to go and keep it past 20 years now. They have to keep it forever. And, but, um, you know, even with this, they've been able to get some recent transactions. Uh, so there's almost a billion transactions, at least as of February in this database. 51 of them, 51 million of them were from 2021. Uh, that will obviously go up over time as more dealers go out of business and they get the records. Uh, but uh, they want to kind close the loopholes in these things because they're not getting all you know a billion sounds like a lot of transactions that they have records for but they want to kind of close any loopholes that they have and so they want to use the credit card companies to go and do this so my advice would be with the bill that you could have with esg just to say any because these credit cards go through banks and financial institutions. I would just say any financial institutions that go and provide this information, because they don't have to. There's no federal law that says they have to do this. Basically, the reason why they're doing it is because of threats of lawsuits. You have people like um, Senator uh, Elizabeth Warren, who says this is an important piece of information to go and identify mass public shooters before they do it. My only question is, what are you going to look for in these transactions to know whether somebody's going to be a mass public shooter? Uh, 
you know, 57% of the mass public shootings over the last 25 years have involved one gun. Another 26% have involved two guns. So you're gonna look for people who buy one gun or two guns. Uh, you're gonna look for people who buy 200 rounds of ammunition. You're gonna look for people who buy AR-15s, the most popularly owned rifle in the United States. <clears throat> you know, it's not really clear anything that they can look at there that would help them in any way solving any type of crime or stopping these things in advance. But that's not really, I don't believe, their motivation <clears throat> for this. I think it's just to create the registry. So I wanna talk a little bit about uh, gun-free zones. Uh, the bottom line about this debate, as I was mentioning earlier, is over what might possibly happen, okay? Now, basically ignoring the decades worth of experience that we have on these issues. So, I just a fun thing quickly here, and that is, um, I don't know if you saw this, but a couple weeks ago, uh, it got national and international news about these billboards in, uh, in um, Los Angeles and San Francisco warning Californians not to move to uh, Texas because there's so many mass public shootings in Texas. You see this? Anyway, uh, one of the things that none of the media did was actually deal with whether the claim was true or not. Uh, if you look since 2000 when California uh, enacted its major assault weapons ban, there have been 10 mass public shootings in California. So a mass public shooting is a shooting where four or more people are killed in a public place, not involving some other type of crime like a robbery or gangs fighting against each other over drug turf. So California had 10, Texas had six. If you look just since 2010, California's had eight, Texas has had five. So you can adjust even for population, because California obviously has more people and on a per capita rate, California actually has a higher rate, but you know none of the media is gonna point that out. So just another example of media bias and how this affects people's impressions. You may remember in July this year, there was a shooting at the Greenwood Mall near Indianapolis. Uh, what got coverage in the news was that uh, the killer there had killed three people, he still had like 125 rounds on him. At that point, a young 22-year-old man who was legally carrying a gun under their constitutional carry rules that they had just adopted there, uh, shot and killed the attacker. Um, uh, immediately, uh, the media came out and said, well, this is rare. You know, the rare thing is that the media covered the fact that a civilian used a gun to stop the attack. That's what was rare here. Uh, the Associated Press uh, said from 2000 to 2021, fewer than 3% of the 433 active shooting attacks. So an active shooting is different from a mass public shooting. An active shooting is similar. It's any guns are fired in a public place, not involving some other type of crime. One person may be targeted. Nobody may have actually been shot. Uh, so it's a lot broader than mass public shootings ended with civilian firing back according to the Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training Center at Texas State University. The FBI has paid these guys like $7 million to put this database together. I wish I had $7 million. But uh, the point is, it's just a mess what they did here. Um, 
I, I can't go back earlier, uh, and, I didn't, and I know I don't have all the cases, but if you look at the period from 2014 to 2021, the FBI using the Texas State University research reports that there were 11 active shooting cases where armed civilians stopped shooting uh, attacks. Let's take a quick break. I mean, come on. Somebody's got to pay for this thing. We'll finish up with John Lott Jr. in just a second. Cowboy State Politics is brought to you by Morton Buildings. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but it's fall. And do you know what happens in fall in Wyoming? It starts to snow. And all of those pretty things that you own, the boat, the four-wheeler, the shiny Harley-Davidson, are about to be living in a giant snowbank. Now, the way that you can prevent that is if you call my friends Nick and Jesse at Morton Buildings, 307-674-2532. These guys are the experts in metal building construction. It doesn't matter if you're looking at a big garage or a barn or maybe a roping arena or even a giant warehouse. Just tell Nick and Jesse what you've got in mind and they'll handle all the details. That's Morton Buildings. Give them a call, 307-674-2532, or you can check them out on their website at mortonbuildings.com. It's Wednesday, and you know what that means. Gun of the Week time from Gunrunner Auctions. This week, it's lot number 317. It's a Thompson Center contender, single-shot pistol carbine in 45 long Colt, 410, and 45 ACP. It's in excellent condition. The 45 long Colt and 410 barrel has an excellent bore, fixed front and adjustable rear sights. The second barrel is a 45 ACP 10 inch octagon and has an excellent bore, fixed front and adjustable rear sights. It comes with one wood handle guard for the two barrels. The 45 long Colt barrel has a 95% blue finish with some muzzle wear. And the 45 ACP barrel is 98% with very light muzzle wear. The etched receiver has a 98% blue finish. The wood handguard and pistol grip are in great shape with some light impressions. It includes a Thompson Center smooth wood sock stock to convert it to a carbine. The stock's in really good condition with some marks and has a TC rubber butt pad on it. It comes with a wrench and the screws and an aftermarket hard case. This whole thing is a nice outfit, and it can be yours. It's lot number 317 at GunRunnerAuctions.com. Again, don't forget about the live program tomorrow. That's Thursday, and it starts at 10 a.m. And now, the conclusion to our program with John Lott Jr. If I just look at cases where mass public shootings were stopped, I get 41. If I look at active shooting cases, I get 129. I, I was working in the Department of Justice up until January last year. And uh, one of the tasks that I was supposed to be doing is working on these active shooting cases. I showed the FBI people that they were missing cases. You know, you talk about the deep state, it is unbelievable. I worked in the federal government in the 1980s. I worked in the federal government uh, recently. In the 1980s, if I pointed out data errors to people, they would fix it. 
When I point out data errors now, when I was in the Department of Justice, twice I had people say, well, I'm a Democrat. It was their response to me, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to just say, well, I'm a Republican, and then they say they're a Democrat again, and I say I'm a Republican, and that's the way we figure out what the data should be on this type of thing? I even have it in writing that they admit that they were missing cases, and they still haven't fixed it. I had actually gone in 2015, even before I was in the government again, and showed them missing cases, and they never fixed those cases. And the thing is, they don't need to take my word for this. I, uh, the Associated Press, Washington Post, New York Times, hundreds of papers across the country and internationally were saying, after this case in Indianapolis, they immediately came out and said, well, this is rare. This rarely happens that civilians stop these attacks. And uh, the Associated Press, as I just quoted above, was one of these. So I contacted the Associated Press reporter. And I said, look, uh, Ed, uh, you don't need to take my word for it. Here's the report that I did while I was at the Department of Justice. Uh, you're quoting this Texas State one. I was asked to review it. Here's my finding. But you don't even take my word for it. Here's the list of cases. Here's the news stories that are on here. And I'm just limiting in this to cases where news articles quoted police as saying many people would have been killed. So, but uh, Ed, I got this response back from him because he didn't fix it. So after a couple weeks, I contacted him again. He said, quote, our reporting citing the specific research by Texas State University over a 20 year period was accurate. No correction was necessary. So what he's saying is, well, I don't really care whether their report's accurate or not. I accurately quoted what their report said. And so that's all the cover that he had there. So, you know, uh, there's a huge error here in this stuff, but neither the FBI nor, um, uh, nor uh, the media cared about correcting this type of stuff. We have, in just the last few years, we have like 20 cases where what would have been mass public shootings, according to police, were stopped. I'll just mention a couple of them here because I think uh, they're newsworthy for you. Everybody knows about Parkland, right? About six months after Parkland, literally, very nearby in Florida, there was another school attack. This occurred at an elementary school gathering at a park right next to a school. There were literally hundreds of students, teachers, and, and uh, staff were there. Phone calls. And uh, 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 what happened was a man came up, started firing his gun, and uh, uh, fortunately there was a vendor there who had a permanent concealed handgun, shot the attacker, seriously wounding him and ending the attack. You will not find any national news coverage on that. You would think Parkland was still getting extensive news coverage. Here's a school shooting that ended very differently. You'd think it might get some coverage, at least the hero aspect. Everybody knows about the, uh, the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, Florida? Uh, 49 people were killed. At the time, it was the worst mass public shooting in U.S. history. It's still the second worst. Um, it was at a nightclub. A one week later, there was an attack at another nightclub in South Carolina, kind of a copycat type guy. He had gone in there, shot three people, had over 100 rounds on him when he was shooting, was shooting at a fourth when 
man carrying a concealed handgun shot him, seriously wounding him and ending the attack. The difference between Florida and South Carolina is Florida is one of 10 states that ban people being able to carry permanent concealed handguns in places that get more than 50% of their revenue from alcohol. South Carolina is one of the 40 states that allow people to be able to carry concealed handgun in places that get more than 50% of their revenue from alcohol. You know, again, you'll search in vain for uh, news coverage about this second case, even though the Pulse nightclub was still getting tons of national news coverage a week later. You would think they might be a little bit sensitive. Here's a, a, a shooting in a nightclub that ended very differently. But the thing is, the media coverage or lack of coverage on this stuff has a huge impact on people's perceptions about what happened. Now, I've already actually kind of talked about this. <clears throat> you know, I've mentioned do they accidentally shoot a bystanders in schools, uh, shootings, or this is for general, I guess. So, you know, you often hear concerns after, with the news coverage, they have all these experts go and say, well, you just can't, you don't want people going carrying concealed handguns to stop mass public shootings because they'll shoot a bystander. Okay, it's possible. Can you name me one of the mass public shootings that have been stopped by concealed carry permit holders where a bystander has been shot? No. Okay, uh, when the police arrive on the scene, they'll sh shoot the Good Samaritan who stopped the attack. I know one case where that's happened, okay, it happened in Colorado uh, last year, uh, in Arvada, Colorado. Uh, it's a tragedy, but the reason why it virtually never happens is because usually the attack's completely over by the time the police arrive on the scene there. So, <clears throat> all right. So the media, in terms of what it leaves out, and I've been giving you some examples of what it leaves out and how it selectively covers this, has a huge impact on the debate on this stuff. One of the things that just drives me up the wall is they, how they cover the diaries and manifestos from these killers. So you have the mass murderer in Buffalo earlier this year at the grocery store. The media gave huge coverage to his manifesto, okay? And the reason why they did was this guy was a racist. He hated blacks. That's the reason why he picked the target that he did. What you won't know is they kept on calling him a right-wing racist. What you won't know is that the guy was an environmentalist. He was a socialist. He hated minorities because minorities had too many kids. I'm sure all the conservatives in this room say, gosh, you know, too many kids. You gotta really hate those people. <laughs> And, uh, you know, that I'm sure all you kind of want all sorts of, you, you think China's a good government, right? You'd like to model us on that. And you're all socialists, right? So that makes you, you're kind of the ideal conservative, according to the media here. But one of the other things that they had in there that he had a lot of attention done to, and they often do this, is explaining why they picked the target that they did. And this guy's no different. Why did he pick the target that he did? He wanted to go after a place where he knew his victims wouldn't have guns to be able to go and protect themselves, okay? These guys may be crazy in some sense, but they're not stupid, all right? They, their goal is to commit suicide, but they want to commit suicide in a way that people will know that they were here. At some point in the past, 30 years or so ago, 
People who were, because we've always had people commit suicide. People decided, I want people to know that I was here. And, and they realized that they could get in the history books by going and killing lots of people. And that media would, around the world, would go and talk about it. Uh, you know, the Sandy Hook killer? I, I don't know if you know this, but the police uh, talked about him putting together essentially what was a doctoral dissertation. He had spent over two and a half years planning the attack. He had looked extensively at mass public shootings around the world over the previous 40 years. And to prove to himself uh, this relationship that I was just mentioning, he graphed out the relationship between the number of people killed in different attacks and the amount of media coverage that it got. Because his goal, according to one police report, was to kill more people than the Norway killer, uh, who killed 67 people that I mentioned earlier. Uh, because he wanted to get even more international news coverage. Now, I can't prove this last point, but I wouldn't be surprised if the reason why he went, given the amount of attention he has on what he could get, do to get news coverage, I wouldn't be surprised that he picked an elementary school because he thought it would be a more horrible place to go and attack and that he would get more news coverage by doing that type of place to go and attack. <clears throat> so, um, so, you know, the media, I can give you dozens of cases where these guys have left uh, diaries or other statements explaining that they want to go to a gun-free zone, but find me one, find me one media outlet that goes and mentions that in their stories. Uh, the other thing uh, that they don't mention is they don't mention that these attacks keep on occurring in gun-free zones. You know, you had the Uvalde school shooting, I mentioned earlier, 30% of the schools in Texas over that have armed teachers and staff. Uvalde was not one of them, unfortunately. Uh, I was able to find within like three minutes whether or not Uvalde banned people having guns there in the schools, whether teachers were armed or not. You just look up their webpage and just do a search on it. It's trivially easy. Um, it's pretty easy in most of these cases to go and find out whether these attacks occur in gun-free zones. What do they cover? They cover how they think the guy got the gun. Frequently they're wrong initially about those types of stories. They talk about what gun was used. God knows how many times I've read about people using machine guns in these attacks or whatever. You know, a lot of these reporters have no idea what the difference between a semi-automatic and a machine gun is. I know in Wyoming I don't need to explain the difference. But, uh, you know, uh, I think the debate that we have right now would be dramatically different if even once in a while the media would mention we've had yet another mass public shooting in a place where guns were banned. If once in a while they would go and mention in the diaries or other things that these guys explicitly picked targets so that victims weren't able to go and defend themselves. <clears throat> But you know the bottom line here is you're going to see this if you have uh, debates, if you have a hearing on uh, getting rid of gun-free zones. I would just have a gun-free zone bill that deals with everything all at once, rather than have a separate one for schools and other places. But uh, uh, you know, have teachers lost control of the guns? You know those types of things. But my suggestion is, you're right next to Utah. Go and bring in some teachers go and bring in some school officials from Utah to testify before the state legislature. Because what's gonna happen is, people are gonna say, well, I'm concerned this or that's going to happen. Well, 
you know, you got a state where anybody with a concealed carry permit can carry on school property. What's been the experience? I know of one problematic thing that happened in 2014 in Utah. Uh, after school hours, a teacher had gone to the bathroom. I don't know why she was taking the gun out of her holster, but she accidentally shot the toilet, killing it. But the, but, but that's been the only accidental discharge that I know of uh, for schools there in Utah. Now, uh, there's an organization called Police One. It's the largest private organization of police in the United States. It has about 450,000 members. Uh, 380,000 who are active full-time law enforcement. Another 80,000 are retired. Uh, and uh, this survey is nine years old, but I think it's still pretty relevant. Uh, I'll just go through a couple questions here. On a scale of one to five, one uh, being low, five being high, uh, how important is, do you think, legally armed citizens are to reducing uh, crime rates overall? 76% of police officers thought that armed civilians were either extremely important or very important in terms of reducing crime. Anybody who's read my academic research knows that I think police are the single most important factor for reducing crime. But the thing that the police understand themselves is that even though they are extremely important, they virtually always arrive on the crime scene after the crimes occur. And that raises the question, what should people do when they're having a confront a criminal by themselves? And if my research convinces me of anything, it's basically two groups of people benefit the most. People who are relatively weaker physically, women and the elderly, you're almost always talking about young male criminals doing the attack. And when a man is attacking a woman or an elderly person, there's a lot larger strength differential that exists there than when a man's attacking another man. And the presence of a gun represents a much bigger relative change in their ability to go and resist an attack. The other group of people who benefit the most are the people who are most likely victims of crime. That overwhelmingly tends to be poor blacks who live in high crime urban areas uh, in the United States. Here's another survey question. They're basically asking, considering the particulars of recent tragedies like Newtown and Aurora, what level of impact do you think a legally armed civilian could have made? So 86% of police officers said that casualties would be either reduced or completely eliminated by getting rid of uh, these types of gun-free zones. By the way, I was mentioning this to some people earlier, one of the reasons why I think Democrats have been pushing defund the police and essentially doing things to get police to quit is police are among the most conservative group in the country. And they want to remove the older officers in particular and then they kind of replace them with younger ones that they can kind of go and mold into having what they view as having the right views on these things. Okay, I'm gonna show you one more video here. This one deals with mass public shootings. You've probably heard that America has the most mass shootings in the world. That's often given as a reason for more gun control. But economist John Lott looked into that claim and he says it's a myth based on one focus study. The United States has the most mass shootings. By far the most public mass shootings. You don't see murder on this kind of scale with this kind of frequency in any other advanced nation on earth. Where did that claim come from? Obama and everyone else base it on. A study done by University of Alabama professor Adam Lankford. University of Alabama professor Adam Lankford. This is Adam Lankford. 
I studied 171 countries for more than 40 years, 1966 to 2012. And essentially the answer was, not surprisingly, the United States has by far the most public mass shooters. This claim received coverage in hundreds of news stories, but all these people were misled by Langford. Langford's study claimed that since 1966, there were 90 mass public shooters in the United States, more than any other country. Langford counted 202 shooters in the rest of the world. Langford claimed complete data were available for 171 countries. But how did Langford find every shooting in all these countries, most of which don't speak English? And how did he find all the cases in the years before the internet? Few governments collect this data. Finding complete data for mass public shootings in just one developing country, say India, in the 1970s, would be an incredible feat. Many of these shootings would have been reported only in local outlets, in the local language. That shooting at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. On the other hand, United States mass public shootings are well documented and hard to miss. If Langford undercounted foreign cases because he missed finding old newspapers or had trouble with language barriers, his paper's entire conclusion that the United States had the most mass public shootings would fall apart. Many journalists and researchers asked Langford for his data. Not only did he refuse to share a list of his cases, or even the number of shootings he found in each country, which are nowhere in his paper, he refused to share an explanation for how he found those cases. That's academic malpractice. Asked if he used foreign languages to search for these shootings, Langford stated, my data were not limited to English language searches. Asked what languages he used, Langford refused to provide that information. This is all the assistance I can provide at this time, Langford said. Look, I've researched crime for decades, and I've published dozens of peer-reviewed academic articles on the subject. Langford won't even respond to my emails with simple questions. Now, maybe he doesn't want to talk to me because I'm well known for my research, more guns, less crime. But Langford has refused to share his list of shooters and methods even with strong gun control advocates. This all seemed very suspicious to me. So the think tank that I run, the Crime Prevention Research Center, researched it. Unlike Langford, we took a lot of time to find all the foreign cases we could. We even got translators to identify cases. Using the same definition of mass public shooters Langford used, four more people killed in a public place, not part of some other type of crime, we found that he grossly undercounted foreign attacks. We counted well over 3,000 shooters, at least 15 times more shooters as Langford claimed. 31% of total shooters, despite the fact that we only have 5% of the world's population. Of the 86 countries where we've identified any mass public shootings occurring, the United States ranks 62nd. Norway, Finland, Switzerland, and Russia are European countries with significantly higher rates of murders from mass public shootings. The explanation is firearm ownership rate. When Langford's data are fixed, there is no relationship between gun ownership rates and mass public shooters. There's a lesson here. 
Langford's critical but simple error could have been picked up if journalists had only demanded his data and methods before publicizing his study. Journalists should learn to be skeptical. In the meantime, we should all be skeptical of news coverage of studies like this that simply confirm what journalists and people want to hear. Before releasing this video, I also asked Langford for his data and methods for finding shootings in foreign language media. Langford would not provide the information. Mark uh, texted me where he got the, uh, my bio from. Uh, just to give you an idea what my life is like a little bit. Uh, gun control groups put up websites they claim to be leaders. And uh, rather than going to the Crime Prevention Research Center, Mark went to a gun control group who had set up one, a website claiming to be me. So I actually had a situation, you guys don't know what BuzzFeed News is, right? Okay, well anyway, um, Jonah Peretti, who owns BuzzFeed News, and is, I don't know, worth a couple hundred million dollars now, uh, back in uh, 2003, uh, he set up one of these websites, pretending to be me, uh, askjohnlott.com, uh, where uh, apparently he sent out, he doesn't know exactly how many, but several hundred thousand emails to people. He'd gotten hold of some gun group email list, having me lobby against the uh, legislation that finally got passed in 2005 uh, to limit lawsuits against gun makers, saying that I'd come out against this and that People should join me in fighting against this legislation and stuff. So anyway, uh, you're not the only person that's been deceived, I guess, but I would hope you would have noticed some of the stuff that's in there. Anyway, well, that makes it convincing. Okay, yeah. Well, I guess they don't want to give it away too much by having a really horrible picture of me, knowing that, because uh, then it might be less believable. Anyway, um, so, um, you know, my bottom line is uh, I think gun-free zones are important stuff. I hope this kind of arms you a little bit with this stuff that are here. I think it is used a lot for the debate that goes on. Uh, there's a reason why uh, school shootings are, are focused on so heavily. Uh, and it's the reason why you see people saying that the United States is unique in terms of mass public shootings, that somehow they want to convince everybody that we have a high rate of mass public shootings because we own so many guns. And in fact, we have a pretty low rate compared to other countries that are there. And, uh, uh, but you know, it's pretty hard getting across to the media and stuff like that. Um, when I used to, when I first got involved with this stuff about 20 some years ago, um, the media would talk to you. You know, CNN would have you on or whatever. Um, and, uh, but now a lot of the reporters don't want to have people on both sides. You read the articles in the New York Times, the Washington Post, they just interview people on one side of the issue. Even Fox is going to the dark side now. Um, the uh, 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 Murdoch's sons are, uh, the one who's running it is a gun control type guy. And I, I had a column for Fox News. It was a columnist there from 2008 up through uh, uh, 2020. But uh, I don't have that anymore. And, uh, you know, you can talk to producers and stuff like that there, and they 
you will find it much harder to see people kind of on our side of the debate appearing on Fox now. It's in the website also uh, is having a lot more just stories about gun <laughs> crimes, bad things that happen with guns, just in general. And I've talked to them. One of the things that most, so one number that you frequently hear about is mass shootings. Most people don't understand that there's a difference between mass shootings and mass public shootings. So that when you hear that there's uh, you know, one mass shooting every day, or more than one every day in the United States, what Biden or others will do is they'll start off with some examples of a school shooting or a mall shooting or whatever, and then they'll say, and one of these are happening every day. They're two very different things. A mass shooting is four more people killed uh, with a gun. Okay, it could be any place. Mass public shooting is four more people killed in public places, not involving some other type of crime like a robbery or a gang fight over drug troops. What you don't realize is that 87% of the mass shootings are drug gangs fighting against each other over drug turf, okay? And beyond that, when they get to the number of, of, uh, of uh, you know, one every day, that's even a different number because the FBI has four more people killed. The one shooting a day comes from a place called the Gun Violence Archive, which is a gun control group. And they define a, a shooting as three or, or more people either wounded and or killed. So it's a much broader group that's there. And, you know, as I say, the vast majority of their cases are, are drug gangs, which are bad. I'm not going to go and say you don't, you, know, you don't want to deal with that. My point is uh, the causes and solutions to go and stop drug gangs fighting against each over, over drug turf is dramatically different than going and stopping somebody going into a mall or a movie theater or something, trying to go and kill people that are there. And, uh, but you know, you try to make these points and it doesn't always get across. So that's important. I also think, you know, somebody, Biden's having a huge impact on guns. He's appointing judges to the courts, at tw nominate, getting them confirmed at twice the rate that Trump did. These people are radical uh, judges. Uh, the reason why he's able to get them through much more quickly is that all the Democrats in the Senate under Trump said that he was an illegitimate president. And so every nomination he put up for everything, they filibustered, and that just created a logjam that made it hard to get anybody confirmed. Uh, Republicans aren't doing that to Biden. Um, and, uh, you know, he also has things like this zero tolerance policy and this ESG. So, you know, they're just, I don't know whether the oil and gas and coal industries are going to be uh, alive in any sense at the end of uh, Biden's first term. Uh, you know, you can't just go and shut down your drilling operations and then flip a switch three or four years later and get things to go back to where they were. Uh, but, you know, uh, they're trying to do essentially the same type of things with the gun industry. And so talking about the type of legislation that we were talking about at least kind of pushes back a little bit against that flood that's coming down. That'll do it for today. From the base of the Bighorns in beautiful Buffalo, Wyoming, I'm David Iverson, and this is Cowboy State Politics.